One last thing I want to tell you too, uh, this is the second Sunday of the month, so we will have our post-church social. And this day, we're going to go to Red Robin rather than the Texas Steakhouse, where we're kind of circulating the pavilion and seeing what other stuff is going on. But I just want to remind you, after church, if you don't have any lunch plans or you'd like to meet some new people, it's a great opportunity for you to do that. We will just kind of pack up from here and head over to Red Robin, spend an hour or so there eating, hanging out, and then we'll get on with the rest of our day and the Sabbath. Okay. So with that said, we're back in the book of Philippians today, and we're in a section of Philippians where we've been studying and teaching through uh, how to identify signs of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And this third chapter of Philippians has been a series within a larger Philippians series, you might say, revolving around the central Christian truth that we unpacked pretty dominantly last week. When a person's life is genuinely connected to Jesus, at some point it has to begin to bear fruit. And that was what we talked about last week. We talked about signs of the fruit of the Spirit, kind of culminating into this, really, it's kind of been a theological study on who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. We talked a good bit about the who he is. And then we began talking about how he works in our lives, which is kind of where we are at in this section. So one of the greatest evidences of true Christianity in our lives is when we are regularly being transformed into the image of Jesus in a deep and lasting way. That is the fruit of the Spirit. If you were here last week, you will remember gentleness, kindness, patience, uh, long-suffering. There's a list of these things that are characteristics or attributes of who God is and the way he treats us. And those characteristics, those traits should be growing in us as we grow in the Lord, thus the fruit of the Spirit. So for the bulk of this chapter, Paul has taught us about how God brings fruit about in our lives and what we do to contribute to its growth. And we've been using throughout the whole book of Philippians a a trajectory for how we study. We're taking a primary teaching that Paul gives us and then looking at other places in the scripture where we get a little more detail on what Paul teaches us. Because in the book of Philippians, Paul really says a lot of important stuff very quickly. For example, he'll say, you know, don't put your confidence in the, in the flesh, put it in the spirit. And then he'll move on to another subject. That's just one sentence in the book of Philippians, but it's a sentence connected to a whole worldview for how we live our lives. And so we're, in the Gospel of John, going to take another offshoot, if you will, to talk about what this means to have this fruit in our lives. And today I want to uh, give you a, a bit of a caution. And I give you a caution because Jesus gives us this caution. What he tells us in the Gospel of John is that when, when we desire to live like him, when we are actually at a place in our life where, where God is producing fruit in us through his spirit, it is likely, and I would say, I, I want to be very gentle with this word. When we get to the word world here in a second, I'll elaborate on this, but it's pretty much going to be guaranteed that at some point in your life, somebody is going to have an issue with who you are in Jesus and, and what you believe. Jesus actually uses a very strong word, which we will also unpack today. He says they might even get to a place where they hate you at times. Now, look, I'm sure the last thing you wanted to hear right now after waking up very early today, losing an hour of sleep, you know, braving the hordes of bikers and a beautiful sunny Florida day. You probably didn't want to come in here sipping your coffee, hearing your past to say, like, if you're faithful to Jesus, some people might hate you. That's not the whole idea of where we're going, but it is at least a part of what we're going to talk about. Because like it or not, Jesus and Paul have both said that sometimes living for Jesus can generate conflict in your life with other people. Conflict, the key here being that we are not agents of conflict. I'm not saying that uh, we create conflict in the way that we carry ourselves. That's a whole other problem. That's a direct violation of the fruit of the Spirit. Conflict meaning that when you really begin to press into the rhythms of Jesus, you might find that at times they are opposed to the rhythms of the world that we live in. That's what we mean here by conflict and by hate. 
And so we need to understand what that conflict will look like and how to persevere through it. Otherwise, what will happen is we, we might actually come off of a, you know, a series within a series like this on the Holy Spirit, excited and encouraged for the way that God wants to work in our lives, only to find some challenges in us trying to live that out, and we then are defeated by the opposition. That's what we want to avoid here. It's what Paul teaches us and what Jesus really illustrates. And so in other words, if you want the, the summary statement of what we're going to talk about today, if we expect to spend the rest of our days growing in Christ's grace, then our hearts must be prepared at times to experience the same kind of opposition Jesus and Paul did. That is what we're going to talk about today. How when we attempt to be something for God, when we let him work in us, when he produces his fruit in us, we have to be prepared for times when, when circumstances in life, people, whatever, seek to discourage us. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you today. It's sort of a, a culmination point of everything we've studied over these past weeks. Simply put, it is this. You know, when you strive to keep in step with Jesus in your life, you're likely going to get criticism for it from somewhere. And keeping in step with Jesus is what we talked about last week in Galatians. The idea is to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, means that we are living like and pressing into the rhythms of Jesus. So you have to know at times when you live like this, you're likely going to be criticized for it. You, you will receive some opposition. So I want to open by saying this. Put yourself, if you will, in the shoes of the, the life situation I'm about to describe and ask yourself if this, this narrative sounds familiar to you. You are going through life. You're doing your best to honor God and the people in your lives that matter most to you. You're doing what the scripture says. You're reading your Bible. You are praying you are loving your brother and sister in Jesus. You are caring for your neighbor, maybe not perfectly, but you are really making honest and sincere attempts to live like Jesus, to live in his fruit. Consequently, you start to sense God's presence in your life in new and meaningful ways. You sense God's guidance and care for you. You, you know, these, these grandiose statements in Scripture where Jesus tells us things like, you know, rest in me and follow me. You're starting to embrace that again, that the idea is becoming truth in your life. You kind of wake up one day and you feel like life is getting back on track and, and the sun has risen again in your life. There's a new day that has dawned. And you get to this place where maybe you've even come off of a season of hardship where you declare God is good, right? And life is amazing again because God is working through you. You're really on the mountaintop. And then in the midst of all of the good progress, that lengthy list of great things happening, uh, something else happens. You hit an unforeseen or an unexpected obstacle. You realize, I'll just use the old church terminology, that while you are on fire for God, right, stuff is happening in your life, you start realizing like, man, not everybody in my life around me, those observing me, is as on fire for God as I am. They're, like you're excited, but maybe they're not as excited as you are. In other words, as soon as you start living for the Lord, as soon as fruit starts budding again, it becomes something like a double-edged sword. Life gets a lot easier in some ways as, as the burdens of your life are carried again by Jesus. But that also creates a sense of hardship in your life. That's why I say it's a double-edged sword. Life gets a little easier in one sense, but also a little harder at the same time. And it should naturally cause us to ask a serious question about our life and faith. The most obvious one, you are all intelligent people, so I probably don't even need to say it, but I will, is you start saying, why does it feel like every time I start doing good things for God, every time I sense fruit in my life, every time I, I really feel like I'm making forward progress for him, why does it seem like life starts getting difficult in other areas? Maybe not every time, but a lot. It's the age-old philosophical question. Why does it always seem like, good, uh, like bad things happen to good people? 
Or for those of you who are 40 and over in this room, as the great theologian Billy Joel put it, you know, why do the good die young? That was the whole premise of that song. Only the good die young. The idea is that there's just great things going on in people's life. And sometimes it seems like there is a, uh, they're subjected to an additional hardship. Why does it seem like every time you try to move forward with God in your life, with your friends, your family, your job, it seems like roadblocks start popping up and attempting to keep you from getting there? Well, this age-old life question is what Jesus speaks to in John 15. It's sort of like the two bookends of what we've been studying is Paul gives us this really important statement about how we should really put our confidence in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And when that happens, God is going to start manifesting himself in us and using us and creating fruit in us. That's the first bookend, right? But the back bookend is sort of Jesus. And it's kind of fitting as we move into this Easter season that Jesus obviously was the person who who lived his life most fully and perfectly for God in heaven. And the consequence of what he got was trial, persecution, and suffering. This is what Jesus is speaking to in John 15. And it would do us well to listen to and meditate on his words. Otherwise, what will happen is you, you might unhealthily draw an understanding about how life is supposed to work for you. You might actually start expecting things from God that he maybe didn't promise you because you are pressing into a rhythm of faithfulness. So there are various reasons why some people react adversely to God's fruit in our lives. There are reasons why when God begins to work, oftentimes uh, people will be confused or might even feel threatened. They might be jealous by the success of another person serving God. They, they see God's good presence in your life, and it's sort of a stark reminder to those observing you. For example, if you are joyful in Jesus or excited about Jesus or resting in Jesus, and you have people around you who are without joy and anxious in their life and maybe apathetic in all areas, your life is kind of a living reminder of something that maybe there's a vivid image in their head of what their life felt like, but, but they can't get back to that emotionally. And so what happens is there's a tension that is created there. Let's be honest, okay? For those of you that have been Christians for a long time, if you've ever been in a season of, like, trial and doubt, have you ever talked to, like, a really perky Christian and you want to drown, in, like, in a pool? You're like, please stop talking about how great your life is right now because my life is really hard. And you might not say it that way, but that's kind of what happens is there's an inner tension where you look at something in somebody. There's an envy, you might say, a spiritual envy in a person's life. And that's an unhealthy attitude, obviously, but nonetheless, it, it can be one of the reasons why, uh, why people have a tension with God's good fruit in your life. Or sometimes it's because people just can't see what God is showing you yet. Like you do come to a place in your life where God begins to stoke the fire of generosity, right? We talked about being kind last week, about how Jesus was one of the fruit of the Spirit, is that Jesus was constantly kind to people. He, he was caring for them and loving them, in ways that often weren't even merited. And so let's just say in your life, God stokes the fire of generosity. The, the fruit of kindness begins to move you towards generosity with your time and your treasure. And when you share that with people who have yet to experience the fires of generosity that have been spoke in you, uh, stoked in you, they start to think you're crazy and they remind you of it often. They see something in you that's sort of out of sorts to them, but it is in sort or in step with Jesus. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Uh, three years ago, I shared with you a, a, a very short but very real story about a friend of mine that I have who pastors a church in Baltimore, in inner city Baltimore. And we were talking about the opposition that we were facing in our ministries, the challenges we were struggling with in a restaurant in Atlanta, at a learning cohort. And this story that I'm about to tell you really highlights another reason why people can sometimes see the good things that God is doing in your life, the good fruit, and they'll have a problem with it. 
Sometimes people oppose the work of God in your life because it directly conflicts with their agenda. And so years ago, I was talking to a guy in Baltimore, and he told me that their church spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to rescue people out of drug addiction. It was a rampant problem in their area of, the, of Baltimore. Prevalent, prevalent problem. Now, there isn't a sane person on earth that would say that is, that's not good work. We would say that's noble work and right work and risky work. And man, that's pretty impressive. It's good stuff. And as a result of that good work, what he told me is that they were seldom, if ever, rewarded, but regularly threatened with death by local drug dealers uh, because they knew every person that that church helped out of addiction meant a lost customer and money for them. So this is a place where those who are very, very far from God, whether it is emotionally or spiritually, or maybe it's another Christian who's apathetic and they're just not in your shoes with where you are with the Lord, they see these good things, this, this good fruit, this selfless, sacrificial living, and it drives them mad. In this case, to the point where there are like regular police, uh, regular threats from these people because they know that the church is actually, the church is undermining their agenda, which is to keep people enslaved to these narcotics. So think about your life for a few moments and think about maybe the places in it when you have really sought to serve God well or there's been fruit in your life, but you've 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 sent some opposition and you ask that question like, why? Why do the good die young? Why does it always seem like when I get back up on my feet, it gets hard? I know in my own life when I became a Christian in 1997, I was subjected to some serious ridicule. Some of it was in jest by my closest friends. But some people that I never thought would say the things they said to me started saying things that I never thought they would say to me. They began to ridicule my whole life. And it, it usually revolved around two major fruit areas. Uh, the first was a massive shift in my time priorities. What happened was is I, I, I began serving other people in ways I had never done before, particularly in college and youth. I, I started having a burden for people who I felt like didn't know the Lord deeply and vibrantly. And people were wondering like why I was spending my time on that and no longer the things that I was spending my time on. And it created some tension. The other one was, was frankly, around, around money. Uh, I'll never forget this, and I actually shared this once before, but uh, my mom has been in banking or was in banking until she was laid off years ago for her whole life. And at one point, uh, she actually, I was banking in her bank. She started going through my checkbook, and she saw, like, this consistent, what we call a tithe. She saw these monies going to a church on a regular basis. And they thought, like, I joined a cult. And they started telling me that. They thought, like, your time is being spent over here. You're spending your money over here. You're in a cult now. And I was like, I'm not in a cult. I promise there's no, like, goats in my closet that I'm cutting up on Tuesday afternoons. I'm not in a cult. This is just something that Jesus is changing in me. And it started shifting my whole life. And I have to tell you, the, the root emotion that came through in all that, as I was dealing with multiple peoples that I was very close with, who were making sometimes these crazy accusations, it was shocking to me because at the end of the day, I was pretty naive in my thinking. I just woke up thinking like I'm doing something that I think is really good. And I cannot figure out why so many people are kind of hostile <laughs> towards it at this season in life. Now with time and prayer and processing and explanation, this is good evangelism, right? The hostility can often be deferred. We might bring clarity to the reasons why we're changing. But at the end of the day, you'll never get to that if you actually get defeated by the fact that when you start to see fruit in your life for the Lord, there is op opposition. I couldn't figure out why doing obviously good things was evoking hostility. But the truth is, Jesus can and did. And his teaching shows us this can be common in the life of a Christian. This is what he says in the Gospel of John. He tells us to be prepared for opposition when he brings about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I'll reread John 15:18 through 19 to you. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is another place where he's bearing the burden here for us. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, I did a talk about three weeks ago where we, in a very lengthy way, explained what we meant by the world. I won't revisit that today, but I will touch on it. Before we proceed, we must briefly clarify what Jesus means when he says the world will hate you. The world simply defined as anything that is opposed to the ways of God. If Jesus says be generous where there is greed, that's, that's the world. If Jesus says love your neighbor where there is hate, that's the world. That is what the world is. It is anything that is uh, an, an opposition to the way God wants things to be. Now, when we say hate here uh, and opposition, I want to be clear that what Jesus, Jesus isn't saying that everyone is opposed to Christianity, that everybody in the world is going to hate what we do. Uh, and believing we are creates this actually an identified form now in the evangelical world in America of Christian paranoia. I read an article, uh, I guess it was about a year ago in Christianity Today, that talked about how oftentimes the perceptions we have about how people view the Christian are grossly inaccurate from the way a person actually views a Christian. Now, there are times when they are accurate. There are times, like Jesus is saying, where there can be hate and opposition. But what's happened is, is there's almost a self-imposed type of paranoia that a lot of Christians have put on themselves. And what, what it leads to is it's, it's a neutering, if you will, of being vibrant for God. So I want to be careful here. You don't want to be paranoid. You want to be sensible to the fact that not everybody is going to hate the Christian. I've met people who don't necessarily do what I do or care about what I do, but they'll say like, well, that's a good thing. When I went to East Africa for the first time on a, to serve the Maasai, we were in the African bush. My parents were going crazy. They were like, you're going to go like sleep where lions sleep. Uh, they were nuts about it. And then I'd meet people who would say like, I'd never do that, but that's a really good thing. I wish you well. Good luck, right? That's a perfect example where they might not be opposed to it, but the idea here is that they're not necessarily for it, and at times they might be against it. We want to be careful that we don't apply paranoia to everything we do. It will make us weak in Jesus, and that is not what we want. What he is saying is that every Christian genuinely following him at some time will experience opposition and persecution in the world. And this is because the very existence of a Christian, and a lot of this really has to do with where you live, the form of persecution will likely look very different. So, for example, if you are... Uh, in a, uh, an, uh, an Eastern country right now, your, your uh, chance of being martyred for the gospel, like literally killed in the street, is much higher than it is in America. However, if you look at the problem rates we see with, for example, clergy in America, is a lot of them are dead at like 55 from stroke and stresses. So the persecution, the challenges, the suffering can often have different forms. But at the end of the day, no matter where you are in the range of serving Jesus, the very existence of a Christian can at times be uh, offensive to people. Because if you are truly representing in humble and honest ways, gracious ways, Jesus is light and grace to the world, it will come across, it can feel offensive to those who are far from God, barring your characteristics. I'm not saying we are offensive. I want to reiterate that. But the very nature of saying we're a fallen people is going to be offensive to a person who doesn't believe that. Because the Christian is sort of a mirror at times. And we are a reminder because of who we believe in and what we believe about Jesus that we are a fallen people in need of a savior. Some people will resonate with that. Some people will not. And so as a result, we become God's mirror. We used this term in here before where we're a bit of an image bearer for God. We become a living reminder of what God's goodness and grace is supposed to look like. And that blesses a great many people. And some people feel cursed by it. And some of the people that are cursed by it then feel that it is a blessing if we're humble and stay connected to people, right? There's this myriad of emotions and responses people will show us because we are literally flesh and blood examples of what God intended our love, relationships, 
true spirituality and morality to be. Our lives in Christ's church are the way God intended things to be. And they are, I say this a lot because it's so true, they are a foreshadowing of what a new earth and people of God will look like when Jesus returns. In very imperfect ways, the way we love and care for each other and our neighbor is the way God wants the world to function permanently and for all of eternity. And upon his return, he will, he will fix that concretely into the DNA of the world. The world will be like it once was, right, once and for all. But we're not in that space yet where everybody appreciates that or cares about that. So as disciples, we are literally set apart to be a people where selfless, sacrificial living is the rule, not the exception to it. When you start thinking about the ways of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, we're designed to be a people that, that shy away from selfish ambition. We, dis, we discourage that. We want to have godly ambition. For the Christian, living like Jesus lived, having the fruit of the Spirit in us is the only way to live. That is what we press into. Using our analogy, it is what we sow towards. Not to the flesh, the ways that are contrary to God. But in the midst of this great, beautiful idea, Jesus says, be warned. There are people in the world, and sometimes even those who say they love Jesus, who have not experienced Jesus like you have. And so consequently, the smallest taste of God's goodness in your life can become offensive to them. There is fire in you and none in them. I'll give you just a, a 10 cent example of this. I was a youth pastor for seven years before I took my first senior pastor at a church on the other side of New Orleans. And I can remember in those days, like youth camps were huge. And I take like anywhere from 70 to 100 kids to these camps around the country. There'd be thousands of other kids. It was crazy, right? It was, it was fun and awesome. But all of our kids would go to this stuff and they would get so encouraged. They would be like in the bubble. And they were so excited about life and faith. And then we would bring them home. And some of them went into homes where their parents were encouraging them and trying to help them know Jesus, and they were on the same journey. And some of them would go back to homes where their parents were like roadblocks. They were just like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I thought you were going to go throw baseballs, and you came back talking about Jesus. And they would hit these, these roadblocks. And it's a perfect example at, that as they were drawing closer to God at times, there were people around them very far from God who, who were stopping that or at least attempting to. It's, it's, it's one God, right? But we have different priorities in how we view him in life. For some, he's a great priority. For some, not at all. So take, for example, a person in your life who thinks you're crazy because you are gentle and kind to people who treat you poorly. This is not a worldly fruit, right? We are kind of taught in the world to be tit for tat. The idea is an eye for an eye. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, listen, you're to be gentle and kind to people who treat you poorly. In fact, if you ever want to see that person... Know him and stop treating other people poorly. One of the best ways to do that or to contribute to that is for them to see this type of attitude in us. You begin to embrace Jesus' fruit in this area of your life. I'm not saying you're a doormat, but I'm saying you don't retaliate. In a culture that tells us Jesus' morality is arcane in a great many ways, this is a problem. In a fallen world, at times, living like Jesus means you're living a contrarian lifestyle. It means you're the outsider. You're the strange one. And I don't mean strange because you're just a weird person. We want to avoid that at all costs. I mean strange because you're actually beginning to see the fruit of Jesus in your life. And you can very easily see how a person pressing into Jesus can become the one who is the, ju the judged, not the judger. Because you're bearing an image that is distorted to the people around you seeing it. So you see a person who's trying to keep in step with Jesus, and with the Spirit, is, is a reminder of sorts to the world. That in imperfect ways and with a ton of grace... 
we become mirrors who are supposed to display to the world what God wants from the world. And that is not a, that is not a posture of arrogance. That should be a position of humility. I mean a serious position of humility when you embrace the fact that God sets us apart as, as ambassadors for him on the planet. That's the pretty side of this. But the flip side of the implication of this truth is that when we live like Jesus in these ways, we also, for some people, remind them, we remind the world, if you will, of what they are not yet in Jesus. And as a result, people either appreciate or despise what you do. This is why sharing the gospel is important. Because if, if ever we have people in our lives who feel like we've become a measuring stick for what they could never become, I think we've stopped understanding what grace is. Our goal is, as a Christian is to shepherd people to the same fruit that Jesus has patiently and through other people shepherded us to. And so while it might be really hard to understand how anybody would oppose doing something that seemingly makes you and the world a better place, people do it all the time. And you might ask why? Well, here's the summary. Because when people live out of their brokenness, when people live out of their sin nature, we should expect that. We should have a a spiritual muscle, if you will, developed to deal with it. And that's what Jesus warns us to be prepared for in John. It's one of the stark realities of what happens when you start sowing to the Spirit in your life. And it is also, I'll reiterate, why he places such a high value all throughout the Bible on us sharing God's goodness and grace, the truth of Jesus, with the world we live in. The best way to see that change in another person's life is to invite the presence of Jesus into their life, is to pray for them and to labor for them and to care for them and to be gracious with them in ways that people were gracious with us at some point when we were maybe even hostile, when we were on the the hating side of the paradigm. Somebody long suffered for us and we should try in God's strength to long suffer for others. So this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. Simply put, you have to know if you start seeing the fruit of Jesus in your life, living for Jesus. We want to avoid paranoia, but we want to be prepared for the fact that that might not be the greatest thing for every single person in our life. And if you want to overcome the hostility of the world, this is kind of the action point here, then you must be able to discern it when it arises. So what we have to have, part of the way we develop a spiritual muscle here, is by beginning to recognize, to discern, when this, when this pops up in our lives. We are prepared for it. We know it's happening. It's, it's going to happen. And we, we have a good gauge to sense when it is true and not paranoia. And then we have a plan to deal with it. And so as we seek to live like Jesus in our lives, discouragement, hostility, hatred, whatever you want to call it, will likely come to us from two main areas. Uh, and it revolves around this idea of voices, which is a subject I've talked about in here before. I'm convinced in the Christian faith that the voices you listen to in life really dictate where you go. And the ultimate voice you'll see in everything we talk about today, the ultimate voice, the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, our Jesus, that is the voice we should, we should pay most attention to in life. Okay? But we have to know other voices will compete for that platform. So in the two main areas that it comes through, these discouragements, first form of discouragement comes from external voices, from, from things or people around us that say you can't or shouldn't become who God wants you to be. When God is bringing fruit about in your life, when God starts making you gentle, this was a, a, a kind of a funny story, uh, and I... I shared this in Roman culture years ago, but the idea of gentleness and meekness was despised in the first century world. It was viewed as like, if this guy is God, how can he be gentle and meek? Like God sit from the heaven and like smote the earth and destroy things. The very nature of Jesus was, was really con- 
contrary to how people understood gods. And I could tell you even in my own family's life, like gentleness and meekness were not valued growing up, like toughness and hardness was. And so what happened is, is people were bringing up these things. They were saying like, you're going to get like beat up and taken advantage of in the world if you start being gentle with people. And, and I guess that's possible, but I think when it's married with good discernment, you start sensing, you know, when to be gentle and when to be careful and when to step away. And so all of this, all of these voices, they, they create a form of hate, if you will, just using Jesus' analogy. This type of hatred expressed by a person for what God is doing in your life can at times be very aggressive and often unbridled. Uh, this is a person who at times might even unashamedly hurl insults at you. Uh, they poke and they take shots. They constantly pick apart what you believe. They say, it's ridiculous. Uh, you're ridiculous. It's outdated. Obviously, there's lots of things I'm not sharing that they say. But the idea here is that they, they live from a platform of insulting. They're almost always aimed at doing one singular thing undermining your confidence in God's promises and your unassailable identity in God. Just look at the advent of what started happening about eight years ago in America. You know, we used to see all these like Easter billboards up around these these major Christian holidays. And now there are like complete platforms for atheists up. That's great. It's a free society and they have a place for that space that we should allow them that place. But you can see that these are these are essentially responses to these holy seasons that we celebrate as Christians. Right. And what they're trying to do is get you to, to undermine your confidence in God. They're trying to, to destabilize your identity in God. And so they work an angle, the, the hater, if you will, works an angle that is the exact opposite of the way the Holy Spirit works in your life. We've said multiple times, he works to bring you to Jesus. He is the spotlight directing your head, your heart, and your hands to Jesus at all times. This type of person, this type of opposition works in the exact opposite way. They are a spotlight too. They're just regularly trying to get you to disbelieve God's promises to you. They challenge everything. And this is why Paul tells us we should be able to give an account for what we believe. We should be able to have a dialogue with people who, who might even be hostile. And so what they try to get you to believe, mainly, is that uh, they, they try to get you to stop believing that God is with you through all of life. That he is present with you in the hardships and the successes. Unlike the Holy Spirit, they seem to lead you, to lead you out of step with Jesus' spirit. And their tactic revolves around the lie. And that makes sense because the tactic of the Spirit is truth, right? The truth of Jesus. So the opposing force, the, the, the other team, if you will, is going to try to steep you in the lie. And they will use discouragement to demoralize the people of God by reminding you of what you are not yet in Jesus and trying to get you to take your eyes off of God's promise. Well, you say you're a Christian. Christians are supposed to be nice. You were mean to me today. You need to listen to that, not be mean. But, but you also need to know that Jesus doesn't end the story there. He says, now let me help you be nice to people. Let me get in your life so that we can help correct this, bring fruit in this area. Jesus constantly tries to make you something that you are not yet. But this type of person is reminding you of you what you will never be. And they, they remind you that your area of fruit, whatever it is, is impossible to see in your life. And sometimes their words seem rehearsed and even calculated, meant to cut you deeply. So an example of this would be this. Let's just say there are some of you in this room trying to see fruit in a major area of your life. You heard what we talked about last week, and you said, I'll just nail down one. You said, I have to work on being gentle, or I have to work on being uh, patient, or I have to work on what it means to love like Jesus loved, whatever it is. Maybe, maybe you connected to the fruit of the Spirit, you sense a little depression in your life, or that you're struggling with something, or there's a dominant emotion, a negative one driving you. Maybe God has shown you a future. I mean, in a sensible way, right? He's shown you a path that he wants you to walk down, but, but you see the other side of the river, but you're not over it yet. And while you're moving from where you're at to where you're trying to be, people are in your life telling you that you can't change. Like you went maybe last week and shared this with somebody, and they said, no, you can't do that. It's stupid. God isn't even real. 
How can he make you? People don't change. You know, that whole analogy. People start telling you your dreams are ridiculous, that your God is a fraud. Maybe somebody you told, told you that, you know, you couldn't be used by God because your past was too rough. Or maybe you believe that. Or maybe you just lack the confidence to be used by God. Who knows exactly what this type of person says? But we know that whatever they say, this type of worldly hostility seeks to demoralize and undermine who you are in Jesus and what Jesus wants to do through you. And so if you're dealing with this now, um, or want to prepare for the future, because if you're dealing with this now, that makes sense. You need to know if you're not dealing with this now, at some point you likely will. There is a solution. There is a, there's always a truth to combat the lie when it comes to this type of behavior. And the solution is, is sort of a simple one. It's a simple one to hear, but a very hard one to apply at times in our lives. If you're dealing with external opposition like this, people in your life attacking you, cultural expectations attacking you, whatever it is regarding who Jesus wants you to be and what he wants you to do for him, there's only one real way to deal with it. it you just have to begin to prioritize the voices you listen to. You have to find the people who love you and make sure you listen to those voices. But you have to weed out negativity or extreme critical, whatever that is, wherever it is, it is a spotlight moving you away from Jesus. If you let that dictate your life, what will happen is your identity, your value, your purpose, and your worth in life will be less. Less to you, but not less because of the truth of what Jesus has said about you. And this is the reality of a teaching like this, is the ultimate say in your life is what Jesus says about your life. And that is the ultimate hope we have in becoming something different. That's the ultimate hope we have in seeing fruit in these areas in our lives. Your ability to change, your ability to become more like Jesus is declared by Jesus, and it is secured by Jesus and sustained by Jesus. And nobody can rob that from you. So if somebody says you're just a very grouchy, grumpy person, you'll never be gentle. If you are in Jesus, you have to know that is not true. You actually can become a person who is gentle. If you will you know, humbly walk with Christ and let him work this out in your life. Put steps in your life. Safeguard your life. We talked about this last week. But know that the ultimate reality of becoming that, of seeing fruit in your life in this area, is God's prerogative. And he wants to help you become something that you're not yet. You have to listen to that voice. His voice has to be incredibly important in your life. Start listening to Jesus is what I'm saying. Start reading what Jesus says about your life. If you think you're worthless, look at what's about to happen. We're going to celebrate the cross. That's Jesus' ultimate designation that you matter, that you have value in life, that you mean something to him. That is a, pretty, that is a, a, a very uh, encouraging assumption to live your life under. The first form of, of discouragement can often be from outside us. The second form of discouragement, though, often comes from inside us. And I think this is the more dangerous of the two. They're both dangerous, but this one is really, really dangerous. You know, Because you can like not talk to a person who's negative to you. You can hang up a phone or not reply to an email or a text. But if you are an internal voice saying you can't or shouldn't become someone who God wants you to be, you can't hang that up. That's not possible. I mean, I shouldn't say it's impossible. It's just really hard. If you've ever had a rough couple of weeks and you can't sleep at night because your head's telling you stuff, this is what I mean here. The, your, your voice, you can't separate yourself from it at times. And so this method of opposition is identical. I'm not going to give you the details of it. The same tactic is used. It is identical to the one we just spoke about. The only difference is the source of it. The source of this hostility is not what is around you. It is you. It is me. It is what is in us. It's when you get to the place in life where you are discouraging yourself. And this is where we end up when we think we are responsible for producing fruit without the presence of Jesus. This is why we spend so much time connecting these two ideas. You are not the ultimate producer of fruit in your life. You have a job in the field, that's for sure. You have responsibilities to the soil. But ultimately what grows out of that soil 
is done by the hands of our Father in heaven. And so if you disconnect yourself from God's promise to bring fruit about in your life, you're going to start telling yourself lies about who you are or are not in Jesus, and you will likely start to believe them over time. Because let's be frank, we can be very convincing to ourselves, right? Naturally, when you subject yourself to this kind of abuse, you'll become weary and discouraged. You'll bear a burden and a yoke that you were never meant to carry. You'll stop resting in the joy and the promises of God to overcome, to bring fruit about in your life, because you're focusing on the overwhelming circumstances of your life. You're focusing on fruit that isn't around yet. And as a result, you throw the switch to the other direction. You start sowing to the flesh. In other words, you're the ultimate voice of truth in your life. And when you sow to the flesh, you can't sow to the spirit. We've already discussed this. Like, from a a spiritual sense, those two things cannot coexist in the same body. One is going to win every time. So you have to ask, which way are your seeds being thrown? If you're throwing towards the spirit, you're going to see the fruit of the spirit. If you're throwing towards the flesh, you will likely embrace the fruit of sorrow and lament. Why does this happen? Well, think about it. When we start to believe and think like that, you will likely start to rely on your own strength, not the power of God to see you through whatever form of discouragement you're dealing with. So the cry of your heart now becomes defeat. It's no longer victory in Jesus. It's defeat. The bottom line in this is the less you look to God, the more likely you are to, uh, to look to yourself or other voices in your life. So remember, simply put, living by the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, seeing fruit from the Spirit, can't happen in your life if you attempt to remove the aid of the Spirit in your life. You cannot be Spirit-led if you do not have the Spirit in your life. You cannot sow to the Spirit if you're not owning the reality in your life. Figuring out who the Holy Spirit is and asking God through His power and presence to work in your life. So how do you overcome this? A potentially negative internal voice? Well, the same idea is, is present here. If you're dealing with an internal voice of opposition today, if it is you keeping you from, from seeing fruit in your life, whether it is a, a particular area we spoke about last week, how God wants to use you to make disciples or something else. You know, I don't feel like I'm ready to pour into somebody else's life. Man, I'm telling you, that, that could be true. I'm not at all going to second guess that from the front of the room here. But I am telling you, sometimes that might be less true than you think. And all you have to do is look at the lives of the disciples. They immediately began investing in people's lives. You might not be in the front of the room teaching something, but, but investing in a person's life is no less valuable. It is just as an important task. So be careful about these prohibition statements we apply to our lives. We want to discern whether or not that is a voice of opposition within us or if it is truly the hand of the Spirit staying us in an area of life. That's important. Because one will prepare you for the future, the other will keep you from having one in Jesus. No matter what it is, you have to remember, nobody, not even you, not even me, can tell me or can tell you what you can or cannot be in life. Only Jesus has the authority to do that. And when you listen to his voice in that area... Powerful powerful things start to happen. You'll start to believe that you can do things for the kingdom of God. They will very likely look different than what you thought, but nonetheless you will see that I am being used by God, that he has purpose and meaning in my life. You will believe change is possible. You'll believe fruit is possible. You will have hope and patience and peace. You can apply that to people in your life that maybe you were unable to. You'll believe that there is freedom from sin that that entangles you, that, that from negative emotions that kind of cripple you. You see, the reason none of us should be afraid of adversity is because when we're serving God with all of our hearts, when we are prepared for it, when we understand what it is and isn't, and when we're sowing to the right authority and when it comes up in our life, the truth is no matter where it comes from, you and I have been built to persevere through it. That's what the Christian faith teaches us. 
God has given us everything we need to stand strong. He has promised if we will look to him, he will see us through. He's promised to get you and I to the place he's leading us. And he's promised to do this through his spirit. He has promised, if you will, that we will persevere. The reason we should have hope in adversity is because perseverance in Jesus dominates adversity. That is a promise we must know. It is a promise we must believe. It is a promise we must rest in and rely on. It's a promise you have to function under. And if you don't, you will likely adopt a posture of defeat and fear when it comes to the things God is leading you to do. And that's bad. Because when you live in fear and defeat, you miss out on the great adventure of following God, the great adventure of pursuing Jesus with all your heart. So I'll leave you with this quote. It's been three years since I've quoted Teddy Roosevelt, long overdue, so you know my man crush. Here it goes. In his writings, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, this is a guy who uh, I've come to admire in many areas of my life. Not all, but he, he spoke a lot about overcoming adversity because he overcame a great amount of it. And while this quote is not distinctly Christian, it's very applicable to what we're talking about today. And so I just want to read it to you. You can, you know, peruse the rest of his writings because a lot of them are very inspirational. And what I love about this is they're written from the real world. They're written from a person who was essentially told he couldn't be something, and then he became something. He said this, It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man, or woman, obviously, who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, and comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. That's sort of what Jesus is saying here. It's like, there is no forward motion with the kingdom disconnected from failures or mistakes or, or opposition. Both of them are telling us, like, get in the arena. That's what matters. He goes on to say, but he who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. And so what he's saying here is don't live a marginal life. He uses the gray twilight as an example of like in between, like committed to nothing, comfortable in our areas, struggling with nothing, right? He's saying leave that. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying so to something different, so to vibrancy. So to truth, so to progress, so to my kingdom. Both men tell us no one who attempts to be something in life. Roosevelt was eventually a president, you know, a great warrior in the army. For us, it's to be a faithful servant of Jesus. No matter what we're trying to become in life, even if it is for God, we're not exempted from ridicule, hostility, or criticism. And if you let the fear of those things define you, you will never see the fruit of Jesus in your life you will sow to a different kind of fruit. Flesh. And even worse, here's the problem with sowing to the flesh. You will very likely miss the immediacy of God's fullness and presence if you choose the mundane. If you choose the flesh and and the marginal, you're going to move away from God. And when I say immediacy, I I mean you're going to miss the fact that like God is close to you and present in you and available to you. And sometimes when you struggle, the sweetness of his presence in your life in those moments is is enough to keep you going for another decade. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. Do not choose a mundane existence in Jesus. So vibrantly to the Spirit. Know God has a purpose for you and recognize that there will likely be opposition as you fulfill what that purpose is. But don't sow to the marginal. Sow to the Spirit. As we close and move to communion, ask God right now, when it comes to the fruit He is creating in your life, 
and the fruit he wants to create in your life. What is Jesus saying to you and what is it that you will do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the communion table, which we will move to here momentarily. And thank you for what it represents. It represents vibrancy in life. It represents truth. It represents anything but the marginal. It represents your love for us and your all for us. So I pray, Lord, that in, in these brief moments we will have remembering what you have done for us, and in these moments we will have meditating on that, that you would remind us that you gave your all for us, and it is our ultimate prayer that you would help us to become a people who give our all for you. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.